You are listening to Preu Events, a series of recorded public events hosted at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. We conduct research on the conditions for peaceful relations between states, groups and people. Our seminars cover a wide range of topics on war and peace and are open to the public. Visit our webpage preo.org to learn more about our institute and future events. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, my name is Henrik Jordan and I'm the director here at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, also known as PRIO. And it's my great privilege and uh, pleasure to welcome you to this event on Civilians Living with Organized Violence, Protective Strategies and Agency. The occasion is the publication of the book Civilian Protective Agency in Violent Settings, edited by Jana Krause, Juan Masulo, Emily Padden-Rhodes and Jennifer Welsh, and published by Oxford University Press. PRIO is an independent, international and interdisciplinary research institute specializing in peace and conflict research. For 60 years plus now, we have been producing research that seeks to be both academically cutting-edge and also relevant for policymakers and practitioners around the world. And this book speaks very uh, much to this ambition, and so is the panel. The book is a timely publication given the current state of conflict around the world. We are currently witnessing record high levels of uh, conflict, including major ongoing wars in Ukraine and Gaza. We're seeing a changing international order and scaling down of UN peacebuilding efforts. And there are challenges of international intervention for the protection of civilians. The importance of civilian agency and self-protection strategies are increasingly recognized in international peacebuilding and humanitarian response. But there is a lack of more in-depth and nuanced understanding and questions about implications for do no harm. This book uh, brings together a collection of excellent scholars, both from the global north and the global south. It covers a broad range of topics and geographical areas with a great global selection of cases. And several different repertoires and dimensions of civilian action are assessed in various categories of, and various categories of political violence. The book provides a useful discussion on academic insights and uh, what lessons uh, follow for policymakers, such as is civilian agency and protection always a good thing? And under what conditions can civilian agency be beneficial, protective, and contribute to peacemaking? In the preface, uh, sorry, the preface to the volume by Professor Statis Kalibis of Oxford University, he lays out some of the general assumptions about civil wars, among them that civilians are often reduced to victims and little else. But as Kalibis notes in the preface, as it turns out, civilians can and do Many things when faced with violent conflict, they can of course flee, but they might also mount, um, uh, but they might also mount resistance against armed actors, or they can just adapt to the situation they find themselves in from tacit everyday non-cooperation, a la weapons of the weak, to taking advantage of the situation to extract local or personal benefits. They can use violence or opt for a non-violent way of action, as well as many behaviors in between. These broad categories of action vary in terms of their actual form, and they also vary across space and time, thus offering a broad canvas for investigation. I'm glad that we have such a qualified panel uh, to discuss uh, the takeaways of the book, and I look very much forward to this discussion. And then I'll um, 
after uh, wishing you again a very warm welcome, give the floor to Luis. Thank you. Uh, thank you for this uh, introduction and uh, thank you all for defying the weather and uh, coming here to, to Prio today. Uh, I uh, uh, also want to really say a warm thank you to our communications department and particularly to Vera Lind who has made it possible to also broadcast the, uh, the seminar online. So we did some contingency planning here because this, uh, this event has been affected by two of the challenges of the season, viruses and uh, floods. So we actually are still waiting for one of our presenters who, who is uh, coming in late with the train. So if someone comes on stage uh, last minute, you will know uh, what that is. Uh, but before uh, we uh, begin, I would like also to, to say that this event is being recorded, just so that you are uh, aware of that. And also, please, uh, if you could turn off the Bluetooth on your phones or put it on, on uh, flight mode, that would be ideal for, for the recording's sake. Uh, and uh, due to our very efficient uh, communications department, we are also really happy to welcome anyone participating online, since we were able to also stream this uh, uh, directly uh, online. Uh, and we will also turn it into an audio seminar afterwards, so it will be possible to, to, to take uh, in what has been uh, discussed. Um, and I think... Just uh, as I was preparing, I think this, this crisis management and, and the need for engagement and agency and adaptation, I think also is sort of very on topic for this, uh, for, uh, for this book seminar. Because I think when I was reading it as a Swede, it really struck me that there are two, I think, scenarios in Swedish media that are much discussed today. One is people actually living in areas dominated or at least very much affected by organized crime and violence from organized crime and citizens that are trying to help push back uh, the organized crime by, by trying to bring away particularly youth from, from these gangs. And the other one is uh, uh, in relation to societal uh, crisis management and preparedness and how we have actually not come to the point where we actually understand the civilian agency even though we're actually depending on it and I felt that this book even though there are um, seminars from or examples from around the globe I think it really also speaks to a wide, very wide range of different kinds of, of topics so I'm really happy to have this uh, panel today to, to dig into and continue that discussion. And I would also like to invite all of you to think for about questions that we could continue to discuss too late at the, at the later stage in the seminar and also then continue into the mingling. So there will be some drinks and food served afterwards. I hope you continue to, to discussion into that. Um, so I will uh, take you through this uh, seminar a little bit step by step, considering we don't know exactly how it's going to unfold. But uh, uh, I uh, uh, want to first introduce uh, Jana Krause, who is professor at the Political Science Department at University of Oslo and also leader of the European Research Council project that is sort of the foundation for this book. Uh, and she's going to outline the, the, the contents or the results of the book and, and put sort of the, the seminar into to this uh, framing. So, Jana, with that, I leave the floor to you. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, welcome also from me, everyone. And thanks very much uh, to Priyo for hosting uh, this important discussion and to Henrik for the warm welcome remarks and to Louise uh, for the moderation. It's really a pleasure to discuss civilian productive agency and how civilians uh, survive and protect themselves in conflict zone here at uh, PRIO today uh, and with you uh, as the audience. Um, it's a book that has been 
six, seven years or so in the making. It is very much a collaborative effort um, between um, the four editors um, of us, but also very much uh, among the contributors uh, from various universities in Europe, uh, in North America, but also at different African uh, universities. We've had two workshops uh, to start off the discussion around civilian protective agency. We brought in uh, scholars focusing on political violence. Uh, we brought in anthropologists. So we had a very um, large, broad um, crowd of people um, analyzing different uh, examples um, of how civilians survive in war zones, often based on years and years of fieldwork uh, in these conflict zones, and very different approaches um, and different perspectives um, coming together in this volume. And I hope that our discussion today can give you a bit of a flavor of um, the challenges of bringing this research agenda together, but also to coming to perhaps a bit of a unified understanding of uh, what is civilian agency, what is protection, and what are some of the implications, and how can we more comprehensively understand civilian agency in order to better support civilians uh, protecting themselves in conflict zones. If we can see uh, the first slide, thank you. Um, as Louise also just said, um, over half of the world's population today live uh, in various um, so-called violent settings. And we emphasize that violent settings are not just civil wars, but also very much other types of conflict, such as communal conflict or gang violence, or of course mass atrocities um, also um, extending uh, to genocide. There are various forms of armed conflict. Some of these different forms of armed conflict also interlink um, over time uh, and change each other's uh, trajectories, which is why we think it's important to have a more comprehensive understanding of violent settings and how civilians act uh, and make decisions uh, under these very different uh, conflict contexts. Um, in all of these violent settings, civilians uh, seek to protect themselves first and foremost and to survive. They seek to protect their families, of course, their communities um, and their livelihoods. And they often do so very creatively, uh, very courageously, under the most difficult of circumstances. Some conflict settings allow civilians more space and more agencies than others. Um, and I think one of the contributions that we make with this broad understanding of violent settings is to actually better understand the co scope conditions uh, for violent, of violent conflict and how that constrains civilian actions um, and civilian agency. But so people make choices uh, to secure their own survival under most difficult circumstances. And these choices that they make, um, to some extent, also have an impact on the trajectories of armed conflict. Previous academic research um, shows us that civil war dynamics, for example, or civil war violence is to some extent also shaped by the decisions that civilians make. Whether or not civilians support rebel groups, provide intelligence, food, uh, crucial support uh, for rebel survival uh, and support success, or whether they align with a state military actor can shift the dynamics of violence, uh, can shift um, the course of a civil war and has profound implications uh, for civilian victimization and also for international actors who want to support civilians and protect them. The concept of civilian protective agency refers most fundamentally to actions carried out by individuals and communities to protect themselves and or others um, in the context of violent settings. And our chapters uh, flesh out in the book what that empirically looks like in very different settings. Our chapters range uh, from more historical case studies such as um, the Holocaust uh, and the rescue of Jews to the Central African Republic and militia violence to vigilante groups uh, in contemporary Mexico 
to the civil war in Colombia or peace-building strategies in Myanmar. So we have a very broad um, collection of chapters on different violent settings. And in all these different violent settings, um, the forms of civilian protective agency also vary quite dramatically. Evasion is one form that we identified um, in which uh, civilians, for example, seek to uh, evade the the reach of armed groups. Think about, for example, the Ugandan civil war in which it was reported um, that uh, young children would adopt uh, strategies such as night commuting, um, so collectively organized to move during the night so that if a rebel group would uh, attack a, a community, they would not be able to forcefully abduct child soldiers uh, into their ranks. It's one of the most um, well-known uh, strategy of civilian evasion. But of course, many temporary displacement strategies also um, fall under the category of evading the reach of armed groups. Another example is civilian resistance uh, to armed conflict uh, and to armed actors. For example, by refusing to obey uh, commands by armed groups or refusing to provide intelligence or food or taxes or resources that are uh, important for armed group survival and military strategies. And we will hear a lot more about civilian resistance uh, in the context of Iraq against ISIS uh, in a few moments uh, when our last uh, speaker, um, Isaac Svensson from the University of Uppsala, has arrived. But civilian protective agency can also be rescue agency. And here, um, the most um, inspiring, perhaps, um, examples come from the settings um, of genocide. And people who are not themselves directly targeted by armed actors, um, safe potential victims um, from armed actors, for example, during the Holocaust, um, saving Jews uh, in Nazi Germany and also in other occupied uh, countries uh, in Europe, or also saving uh, Tutsis during the Rwandan genocide. And this is a form of protective um, agency that's often understood as particularly altruistic and norms-oriented, and it's focused on saving others and often to extremely high risk to one's own survival. And lastly, civilian protective agency can take on the form of adaptation. Adaptive agency, especially during long um, armed conflicts, during months and years um, of violence. This means that civilians find new ways to negotiate with armed actors, to protect their livelihoods, to generate income, to maintain access to health care or basic education for their children. In my own work, uh, for example, on primarily communal conflict, I understand adaptation as a key factor that sustains civilian resistance um, and civilian self-protection strategies during prolonged armed conflicts and during settings of protracted um, conflict, and that enables social resilience in conflict zones. So how does this uh, form of civilian agency emerge under such difficult um, circumstances? Agency means most fundamentally engaging with and shaping one's own environment. And it can be rooted in both individual socialization, normative worldviews, religious beliefs, um, normative views of understanding the world. But also, a research has shown that it is very much rooted in collective experiences of communities and past experiences of armed conflict, for example, uh, memories of previous forms of resistance against unjust rule or armed actors, and also in perceptions that civilian communities have about a specific conflict situation. So agency means that people navigate conflict settings and seek survival, and they draw on their own predictions of how armed conflicts will evolve, 
on how armed actors will behave towards them and how they can adopt certain strategies um, to better secure their own survival. And lastly, what means protection? In the book, we adopt um, a broad understanding of protection, not just the physical protection, physically surviving armed conflict, most obviously, but also incorporating a broader understanding of protection from the more indirect consequences of armed conflict. Much research, including um, the reporting of humanitarian organizations, of course, um, reminds us that the indirect consequences of armed conflict can kill more people than actual direct um, violent acts. So we adopt this broad understanding um, of protection to also encompass livelihoods, uh, medical care, education, and to some extent also community um, identity during armed conflict. So I should stop here in order uh, for giving you a brief um, overview and introduction um, to the book. I see that um, Isaac, um, our <laughs> um, second speaker, has just arrived, um, and I think he's uh, being provided with a microphone yeah. as we speak. So we could, um, in fact, um, keep uh, the program as planned and jump into Isaac's uh, presentation on uh, civilian resistance against uh, the presence of um, ISIS in Iraq. It's one of the most um, uh, fascinating chapters, I think, that the book has to offer based on survey data that was uh, collected uh, in Iraq. Uh, Isaac, we're very happy to see you here on the podium. Thank you so much for enduring the extremely long train journey this yes, morning a very long train, yes. um, and for presenting us with an overview of your chapter. Welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, great to be here at last. Um, and uh, let's see, I think I have a PowerPoint, yes. right? So it's next, part of that right. one. So maybe the next here. So I, I will say a few words about the study that we did uh, a few years ago um, that we conducted in Mosul in 2018. 2018, that's one year after IS occupation of Mosul. Uh, we surveyed... Respond, uh, residents of Mosul that stayed on during the IS occupation. And our focus was on the concept of civil resistance. That is one particular type of civil agency. Civil agency in this book is sort of talked about more broadly. We focus here on nonviolent resistance used by civilians. Uh, we surveyed uh, people in Mosul, uh, 1,024 residents, and we asked them about the way, if they resisted ISIS, and the way they did so. And then we grouped that into three different categories. I know this is a, a difficult, somewhat difficult to see now, but I'll, I'll try to, to show anyway. So there are three categories of civil resistance. The first one we called everyday resistance. This is a type of resistance which is quite prevalent. 83% of the respondents self-reported to engage in some type of everyday resistance. Everyday resistance is not necessarily political. It is a type of resistance done in your everyday life. It is, in this, in this context, for example, not praying regularly, working slowly, listening to non-religious music, smoking, uh, drinking alcohol, practicing forbidden 
sports. These are uh, practices that goes against the regulation of IS during this time. And IS, as you recall, tried to implement the totalitarian version uh, of, uh, of society that had expectations on people's morale, on, on their life, and how they lived their life. And people did not fully comply to this. Uh, we can see that there were uh, a lot of resistance occurring in this way. The second category of resistance we call non-cooperation. This is uh, when civilians withdraw their cooperation. This is a common form of resistance when we discuss civil resistance in the civil resistance literature. The most important, uh, 78% reported some type of engagement that could be classified as non-cooperation. The most important here is quitting university or schools. And this is important in this context because schools were important recruitment areas for IS. So IS tried to use the schools to indoctrinate people, but also to get them to become uh, recruited into the armed forces. So withholding their children from schools was both an act of resistance, but also an act of protection, which is also an important theme in, in this book. Uh, Other examples of this is not going to work, refusing to cooperate with IS institutions. Taxes, not to pay taxes. Of course, this is extremely dangerous in this context. And withholding taxes was, uh, according to the regulations, seen as theft. And theft was regulated by cutting off your hand. If you didn't pay zakat, it was the same as apostasy, which was uh, equals to death penalty. So there were severe consequences of this type of non-cooperation. Lastly, uh, the the least common is the public public form of disobedience. Uh, 26% did some type of public uh, uh, manifestation uh, that they showed displeasure with the IS. For instance... Slogan, one of the slogans was the, the M sign on the walls. Uh, um, there were also uh, some, a few protests that occurred, but that was quite rare for obvious, obvious reasons. So an important point here to take away is that a lot of people did actually, even in these severe circumstances, engaged in some type of civil resistance. Then we can discuss sort of why was this the reason. And we don't give any conclusive answer to that in this chapter, but just to draw it to an end, mm-hmm. uh, say uh, some findings that I think is interesting there that we can come back to in the, in the discussion. The, this is a, uh, very difficult for you to see in the back, but uh, figure 4.1 here shows the perspective of, on IS governance. And you might see here this very tall... Uh, line up here that the overall perspective on IS governance was very positive. You, the perspective was that IS actually delivered in terms of safety, crime, distribution, economy, morality. It was a very positive uh, perspective on IS governance. The questions were asked 
highest in compared to the previous government. So that's important to bear in mind. Lastly, we could see that the perspectives on uh, that graph down, down there, the perspectives on uh, the attitude towards IS members, however, was very negative. And we think this is uh, uh, quite important and there can be preliminary conclusions drawn from this. The, the so-called rebel governance literature points to the importance of governance, but we see here that the, the perspective of governance was actually quite positive. right? But the perspective on the IS members as seen as alien, as seen as foreign, many of them coming from other countries, not adapting to the local culture, that was highly problematic from the uh, perspective of the people. And that might be a reason why so many people uh, resisted this state formation project. Thank you so much. Thank you, Isaac. Uh, and also thank you, Anna, uh, who also, I should say, presented on behalf of uh, Juan uh, Masolo at the University of Leiden, who unfortunately uh, came down uh, with an illness this weekend, so he couldn't join us. Uh, but I think you have sort of really set the frame in terms of highlighting how many practical dimension this also has in terms of, of how we think around and work for protection, uh, and also how we support the security of civilians. And I'm therefore really happy that we have two uh, representatives and two actors in Norway that are uh, critical for for working on this uh, in in sort of an everyday uh, practice to try to to improve security. So in the in the next step, I'm therefore glad to first introduce uh, Erin Mobeck, who is the policy director at uh, NORAD on uh, fragility. Uh, and following from her, we, her, we have uh, Fredrik uh, CM, who is the head of unit at the Protection and Restoration, Restoring Family Links at the Norwegian Red Cross. Uh, so with that, Erin, I will leave the floor to you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for inviting me to speak at this this event, it's extremely important um, that we have this focus, um, I believe. And this is an extremely timely book, given, as Henrik was pointing out, the, the current situation in the world um, now varying from, from both major conflicts to increasing numbers of smaller conflicts around the globe. Now, first, I want to kind of highlight uh, two points uh, from the book um, and tie that into uh, a third. Um, what I was extremely pleased to see uh, was the broad approach and, and um, definition that this book takes to civilians and that the acknowledgement that civilians are so many different things in these types of, of contexts because previously or for a long time by multiple actors there has been a tendency of lumping civilians um, together uh, as as one group, not understanding the different nuances between them and therefore frequently also just defining them as, as victims. Um, I was 
very also pleased to see the the role played by armed groups as in having a protective role of local communities as well. And if, for example, very briefly, just looking at Haiti, where armed groups have been playing a key role um, for decades, and uh, these have been politicized to some degree, as in established by politicians' uh, uh, opposition, um, but also non political af affiliated. So there is that duality in their local communities. These groups have also been uh, protecting the local communities, yet at the same time, they have been a reason for the instability in Haiti. Uh, but the communities have been looking to these armed groups for protection because the state hasn't had the ability to have any meaningful or provide any meaningful um, protection at all so that the citizen state contract, the social contract, um, has been and is dissolved in Haiti and has been for, for a lot of years. Then on the other side, you have non-armed um, civilians that are yes, in one way, very vulnerable, but they have also played a key role in intensifying or initiating conflict. And in certain communities in South Sudan, you see this very clearly, where women have played a key role in inciting, particularly the men as well as children, to, to violence. At the same time, these women have also been a key target um, for the violence uh, and therefore also been victims. And as external um, actors, whether it be um, bilateral donors or multilaterals or INGOs, uh, therefore having that understanding through uh, power analysis and actor analysis, political economy analysis, understanding um, that and having the capability of seeing the nuances uh, in civilians and among civilians is extremely important. Now, the second point in the book, which I think is, is excellent, is that broad definition um, of protection, as in not only focusing on the physical violence, um, but that the protection from disruptions of livelihoods, from inadequate access to health, education, food, etc. And of course, this has clear links um, to migration, both internal displacement and transboundary migration, uh, which again has then links to, to instability in, for example, the region. Now, what I'd like just to link these two points up to is that of conflict sensitivity. Now, development is not neutral and it affects the conflict dynamics in very many ways uh, by introducing resources into areas of inequality 
where there's intergroup tension, polarization, etc., and it can challenge existing power structures and power relations, and therefore create also competition between groups or indeed give new opportunities for corruption. Therefore, ensuring conflict sensitivity um, by external actors in um, supporting different programming and projects become um, essential. Uh, and in that, I mean um, a conflict-sensitive approach, which ensures that support does not intentionally or importantly, unintentionally contribute to conflict, but instead prevent and mitigate the risk of negative impact and strengthening the possibilities for peace and inclusion. Now, in that definition of conflict sensitivity, conflict refers to direct violent conflict, but also um, uh, to latent conflict that has not erupted into violence or resulted in violence as yet, but have, has that potential. And therefore, in these contexts that are being discussed um, in the book, um, conflict sensitivity uh, by not only development actors, but humanitarian actors and peacebuilding actors is essential. Uh, in terms of thinking in a three-step approach, um, conflict analysis, assessment of that interaction between project activities and context and how it will impact, and adapting uh, the project and programming to minimize harm and maximizing positive impacts. Uh, and particularly adapting that through the life cycle of the project. I think I'll stop there and, and dwell more into this in, in the discussion. Thank you. <clears throat> is the mic on? Yeah. Yes. Uh, hello, everyone. It is very nice to be here. Um, I had um, a reflection uh, as I first looked at the, uh, the agenda and the other speakers. And as I'm here cornered between these two uh, academics that you know you guys are thinkers right i mean we have thinkers doers and maybe talkers and you guys are are thinkers and you know talkers a little bit yeah and i'm a doer um who should think a bit more before he talks clearly uh, but also i see this book through a different lens a little bit because i read it and i just see lots of challenges Oh, how are we going to implement this? How are we? I come from the Red Cross and we, are, we abide by certain principles and we are, we're a very conservative humanitarian organization. We've been here for uh, over 150 years and maybe us being conservative is, you know, the reason for that or maybe we're conservative because we're old. But anyway, we see, you know, innovative texts and new information that we have to uh, relate to somehow. And it just seems difficult. <laughs> you know? So bear that in mind as I give my, my remarks. So that's a bit where I'm coming from. Um, I was asked to say a little bit about how uh, the Red Cross works with protection. And, uh, and uh, to keep it simple, uh, I'm going to divide it into three categories. 
So when I talk about the Red Cross, I talk about the Red Cross national societies like Norwegian Red Cross or, or Iraqi Red Crescent. Uh, and I talk about the International Committee of the Red Cross. And I'm not going to talk much about the Federation, which is a sort of a secretariat coordinating uh, the national society's work, especially in natural disasters. So um, the first level is protection mainstreaming. This is something we should all do as humanitarian actors. Um, and protection mainstreaming, in short, uh, there are four main pillars of this approach. Uh, one is do no harm, um, which hopefully at least some of you are familiar with. Uh, the other one is, uh, is ensuring a meaningful access, not just an access. And then you have accountability to affected populations, where we start sort of touching a bit upon the um, topic of the book. And the fourth one, I think, is the one that connects best with uh, this text, and that is empowering um, the local communities, strengthening their uh, capacity to self-protect. So that's, that's an interesting link there. Um, beyond doing that in all our programming, we also, in some projects, integrate elements of protection uh, but the project itself is aimed at health or water and sanitation, something else. But given the context, we want to lift the protection elements a bit more than this general protection mainstreaming approach. Are you still with me? Okay. Uh, so we have now we're supporting um, uh, health in detention activity in Colombia and in Honduras with the Red Cross of those two countries. And because it's in the context of a detention facility, although the goal is health, we have to um, incorporate some protection elements. Um, and this project, by the way, is implemented by the detainees themselves. It's really the civilian agency uh, we're talking about here. So that's protection mainstreaming. A lot of us in the movement use that. Then a bit fewer of us uh, work on um, specialized protection activities. So these are the activities that have protection as uh, the most important outcome of the investment we're making, right? So um, I used to work as a detention delegate for the ICRC. Uh, the only aim was to um, provide protection, uh, especially for the security detainees. Those are the detainees that have been uh, arrested or, or charged with um, crimes against the state. And so in this type of activity, I would um, speak with the prison authorities, uh, identify uh, these security detainees uh, as soon as possible after their interrogation phase, um, and then gather the information about their treatment, uh, and then use that information to try and you know, change the behavior of the authorities at different levels, in short. So all the activity there is to kind of seek that these people are, are uh, living in better conditions within the detention facility and, and treated better, and that they have connections with their families. And a major protection uh, measure is that the ICRC registers them and puts them in their system. So this detainee cannot just disappear uh, at least not without the ICRC being aware of it, because they will follow up. Uh, so that is uh, that has a protective um, element to it. So protection mainstreaming, specialized protection activities, which is already now quite top-down, right? And then 
uh, very top down, like 30,000 feet from the top down, we have influencing uh, laws and uh, norms. So this is largely done in uh, Geneva and uh, conference rooms in, in New York, but it's also done a bit in Oslo and amongst other national societies. We're trying here to change the way um, states relate to international humanitarian law, basically. Last year, or sorry, a bit more than a year ago, um, uh, some 70 states, 80 states, I don't remember exactly how many, signed a declaration in Dublin on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. Um, war in populated areas or, or, and the use of explosive weapons there is the reason for 90% of the, the civilian casualties that we see. So if we can change how states relate to the use of these explosive weapons that are designed for you know, open fields and not densely populated areas, we can have a protective impact. But it's very far from here to the ground. Now, in terms of the relevance of this book, maybe you could hear through what I was saying that the protection mainstreaming level, I think, connects quite well with um, the information uh, that uh, you have produced. And then uh, in terms of specialized protection activity, I, I can see the civilian protective agency complementing it, but I, will, I think you will always need neutral international ICRC delegates to visit these prisons because you can't have uh, a local staff doing it. They won't be allowed in. They won't have access. They won't be trusted by the authorities to be completely neutral and to be confidential in the dialogue that they, that they conduct together. So and I, in the first uh, chapter, I like that you called it the follies of direct in intervention because we are, you know, as a humanitarian sector, changing this. But some of it, we, have, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. Uh, same goes for the, um, I think, the, the laws and norms. You, you, will s you can complement it, but you will still need um, the, a bit the top-down approach. It resonates well with the Red Cross um, approach to work through local volunteers who are essentially members of their communities and uh, contribute to the community's uh, resilience. Um, I thought it was also interesting. Uh, this is uh, we're quite well well versed in in do no harm, and that our presence can, you know, undermine or support uh, the local community. But I was thinking about our presence undermining or supporting civilian protective agency, and that maybe as the Red Cross, sometimes uh, we don't want our intervention to support civilian protective agency, because some of these examples, um, you know. They are, not, they are not neutral agents in the conflict, and we can't be seen to support that. So supporting isn't necessarily a positive thing for us in that regard. Um, and lastly, I was also very happy to read your cautioning about the moral hazards of, um, uh, of uh, intervening with, uh, with support to, to protection, um, and that it could create additional risks for the people we're seeking to help. When working on protection of healthcare services, we developed um, a very nice resource on the rights and responsibilities of healthcare personnel because we believed it was important that healthcare personnel were aware of these so that they were of uh, their protection. But it never sat right with me because I thought of this nurse or this doctor who, when confronted with danger, has his rights and responsibilities as a tool to respond with, potentially. 
And I couldn't imagine a scenario where that would make this person safer. How would this? How would you use that in a dialogue against um, or, or with a, a, an armed person or a very angry family who's unhappy with how their a brother or son is being treated? Are you going to start talking about your rights and responsibilities? I think that would probably enrage the person you you know you have in front of you. So now um, we have incorporated this into. Um, uh, a training that has to do with risk mitigation, that has to do with de-escalation of uh, violent situations, stress management, etc. And within that, there is an element of rights and responsibilities. But, but without thinking about that, I think we were creating this moral hazard. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I would like to uh, ask... Uh, uh, Jana, to both reflect on, on the, the comments and also give some examples from the book in terms of where you also see the, the policy implications and, and some examples also from Myanmar. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much to Ivan and to Frederick uh, for these uh, very helpful and thought-provoking um, discussion points. Uh, I mean, Frederick started with a question, so, okay, this is nice academic research, what do we do with it as policymakers? And I think that's uh, the perfect starting point. And this is really where it also becomes very difficult. I would like to present uh, from the book one chapter uh, that I wrote, uh, which is about um, how policymakers um, and civilian communities in Myanmar before the coup, um, have adopted um, the concept of civilian self-protection um, to protect um, conflict-affected communities there, and also talk a little bit more about the point of moral hazard in international actors supporting civilians trying to protect themselves that you just brought up. If you could show us the last slide, please. Thank you. Um, you might remember that uh, before the coup, uh, Myanmar um, had a peace process roughly between uh, 2011 and 2021 um, after the political opening um, in the country. And it was a very complex, a very complicated, and as we know, of course, it was a failed uh, peace process. Uh, but the UN did have some presence, but also um, a very limited uh, presence. And overall, the context in Myanmar, which had um, insurgencies and armed conflict basically since its uh, independence in 1948, uh, it was always a context where international actors um, have great difficulties uh, in working on the ground and having access to the different um, border, border zones um, with their different insurgencies and armed conflict and in reaching civilians and uh, protecting civilians in any way from uh, armed, the consequences of armed conflict. Um, so after the political opening in Myanmar, you might remember more than a decade ago, that a lot of hope and a lot of optimism about uh, the political process uh, in Myanmar, um, a democratic transition, the military stepping down from military rule, um, the initiation of ceasefire negotiations uh, between the Myanmar military, uh, the Tamada, and the various long-standing armed groups in the different um, region. As I said, it's an extremely complex uh, conflict zone with all the various um, armed groups and rebel groups. I'm not going to summarize them all, but the very basic understanding for the context to give to you is that up until 2015, there were various bilateral ceasefires negotiated uh, between the Tamada and individual armed groups, culminating in the so-called National Ceasefire Agreement of 2015, which received a lot of international support, uh, peace-building funds, and so on. And the map here on the slide shows you um, in uh, red, 
you know, in blue, um, the, the regions and the rebel groups that were included in that so-called national ceasefire agreement um, and the red groups listed here were those that were not included in the ceasefire agreement. The main point here is to remember that there was a ceasefire agreement, a lot of international support by peace-building actors uh, to the monitoring of these um, ceasefires. But uh, the Myanmar military has always been good at negotiating these kinds of ceasefires, but not actually following through with implementing them. And the 2015 agreement was not signed by the strongest rebel groups um, in Myanmar, for example, the Kachin um, Independence Army in the north, but also other um, very strong um, rebel groups that were longstanding. And in this context, um, the EU and other international donors since 2011 funded um, initiatives that were so-called civilian ceasefire monitoring programs. And the idea was that donors, together with international NGOs and local civil society groups, would recruit civilians uh, from the different conflict zones, such as Kachin State in the north, uh, for example, bordering, uh, Myon, uh, bordering Ta- uh, China, and uh, Karen State uh, towards the south, um, bordering uh, Thailand. These are regions that were almost close to international observers, journalists, and also peace-building actors, um, and the idea was that these civilians would be recruited, they would monitor uh, the ceasefire arrangements, they would report violations of the arrangement uh, to the state, uh, to humanitarian organizations, providing them with um, information that they could otherwise not um, receive, but also try to protect civilians uh, in these uh, conflict zones. And these days, many ceasefires have, in fact, a civilian protection component. So monitors are not just supposed to monitor military breaches of the ceasefire, but also report um, armed group uh, abuse against uh, the civilian population in these rather fragile, um, nascent peace processes. Um, So my study, which was based um, on interviews and fieldwork in Myanmar with um, these various uh, civilian monitors, who were recruited by NGOs um, in Kachin State in the north and in Karen State um, towards um, the southeast. Um, that fieldwork took place between 2016 and 2020, so just uh, before the coup, which then very much changed um, the situation in Myanmar. Um, but I would briefly like to highlight some of the findings from that, if you could give us another click. Yeah. So these civilian ceasefire monitors, the idea was that they would be brought together, they were trained uh, by international NGOs, not just in the practices of how to monitor ceasefires, but also in the practices of how to protect civilians and how to support civilians in their own self-protection strategies. And what these monitors did was um, be available to the local population, um, investigate reports um, of civilian abuse, of attacks by armed actors, investigate the conflict dynamics uh, and human rights violations, and report um, these incidences uh, to state local state um, institutions, to the military, to the Tamada, but also to international peace-building actors uh, and to the civilian ceasefire architecture um, that was uh, present, basically the body to monitor these ceasefires uh, that was based in Yangon at that time. It's important to understand that these ceasefires were always very contested uh, and the civilians, they had a role in the understanding of international donors uh, and international organizations funding them but not so much in the domestic actors, which were the rebel groups on the one hand, and first and foremost, the Myanmar military, which did not want to see these civilians monitoring anything, basically. So institutionally, these civilians did not have much of an actual legal mandate. So what they did was they took the training that NGOs and international NGOs provided 
They adopted that training to their local circumstances. In Kachin state, that meant being a ceasefire monitor in an open conflict where the ceasefire, by the time the monitor started, had already broken down. There was no ceasefire to monitor. And so what the uh, monitors did was report on protection issues. Using um, the skills from their training to report on uh, protection, to make international actors aware, to make local actors aware, to negotiate with the Myanmar military to some extent for the protection of civilians, and also to train local communities in how to displace in a more organized fashion to save lives, um, to save livelihoods during an intense shelling campaign by the Myanmar military, and hold overall to support um, civilian communities in a situation of open conflict. And in my research, in my interviews, I found that these civilian monitors They could not monitor anything regarding the ceasefires, but they were effective to some extent uh, to monitor protection issues and to support civilian self-protection in the uh, context of open conflict. Um, The same uh, monitoring took place in the context of a ceasefire that was in place in Karen State with um, the Karen National Union. But it was a dysfunctional ceasefire of a situation of no war, no peace, a bit of a gray zone, where armed actors would continue abusing the civilian population, where there were massive human rights abuses, but there were also no strong institutions that civilians could actually report to. And so civilians trying to protect other civilians from the more indirect dynamics of a highly militarized environment did not really work. The civilians uh, monitors were very much unable to contribute to civilian protection in that very much gray zone context of no open conflict, but also no effective peace-building process. Um, Lastly, to link back to the point made on moral hazard, I think it's very important um, to to learn from these examples because the civilian monitors that I interviewed, that I talked to, both in Kachin State and in Karen State, were very much emphasizing the fear that they had um, of military actors, especially rebel groups. They did not fear rebel groups that much because these rebel groups are very much um, embedded within the local communities and often seen as a protector. But they did very much fear a highly abusive Myanmar military, um, the Tamada and their presence. And so they were trying to explain how they adapted what they learned from these trainings in order to use it in their local context and make the actions that were very risky to themselves less risky, to reduce risk, to somewhat um, try to protect themselves in the monitoring, but still having an effect um, on the local population, trying to protect um, communities. And so in that sense, they themselves mitigated the moral hazard that some international well-meaning NGOs with their programs were in fact to some extent um, introducing um, into these conflict zones. Thank you. Before I give the the floor to you, Isaac, I would like to ask also all of you together as as a panel, because I think you have raised many sort of core points, I think, to to this discussion. One is uh, uh, the aspect I think brought up by both Aiden and and Isaac's and Oyana's presentation in terms of understanding how this fits into a particular conflict context. So how how good are we at understanding the political dynamics of the civilians and, and how they how they are perhaps perceived. Uh, and I think also uh, that ties really nicely into what you said, Frederick, in terms of the what are then the aims of the support that we provide? What are, what's the mandate of a particular organization? And also bringing up the local, the national, the international uh, context and also the NGO versus the state. So there are many, we come into this from very different uh, perspectives. Uh, and I think what in that, I think Aaron raised one critical point uh, that sort of goes through like a red thread through all of yours uh, is and that is who is this civilian mm. 
and and the fact that that also depends very much on the context. And I think one of the things that I think comes out very much in the book and is that civilians are not one cohesive unit. They don't have the same starting points and they're also not part of the same context. And in particularly being one, uh, as I do, that work a lot on diversity, one of the things in order to actually think effectively about agency is to understand where the starting points of different groups. Um, so I, I was wondering uh, if you could all reflect a little bit on, on how you see sort of class or socioeconomic background and gender playing into to this. Mm. Uh, and also in terms of what, what does that mean, both for the analysis, the, the thinking part, and also the, then the, uh, the acting uh, part uh, of this. And then uh, Isaac, if you also would like to reflect on what Erin and Fredrik has brought up uh, and mm. how they speak to your research. In this. Absolutely. Thanks for great, great remarks. Uh, and, and one other thing I would like to take up is the question of empowerment. I think you, you, you pointed to, and I think that's a, a really important point. And in our chapter and in our broader research, we find that, uh, those, that those that resisted, that tended to engage in resistance, were those that were uh, perceived uh, jihadist groups as alien, so that I talked about, the, the kind of perception of, of this foreign sort of intrusive into the local culture. But they were also uh, actors and networks of people that had a previous experience of civil society engagement. So to build up civil society capacity is extremely important also to create on a societal level resilience in, in situations of, of this sort. Right? And when there comes this kind of uh, very difficult challenges... Uh, the fact that people actually do something, that they do resist, that they are able to take up an agency, it depends on their previous experiences, that they have been engaged in organizations and communities, that they have experience of, of, of that sort. And that includes, uh, for instance, women groups. That is a very important uh, type of, of actor as well. So that's something I would like to, to point to. And I think the the Red Cross and, and, and all the, the communities, other communities that are sort of, is part of that, of course, to build up stronger civil societies uh, that in the long run then build up sort of a, a resilience, a possibility for civil, civil resistance in the long term. So I think that's really important. Then on the question of who is the civilians, I think we, we must recognize, and this now I speak from a perspective of peace research, I think we must recognize that we have spent sort of 50 years of studying armed actors and predominantly armed actors, state actors and rebel groups in, in peace research. And only the last decade or so have we started to uh, systematically incorporate the perspectives of civil, civilians and civil actors and civil society. So we are very much in, in the beginning of this process. Uh, and now in, in the beginning, we just take sort of include this as, a, as an overall category as, as research move ahead, we start to make it more fine-grained and start to understand their dynamics. But I think it's important to recognize that, of course, we have studied armed actors so much more than we have done with civilian actors. And now when we are starting to do that, we are realizing that there are important nuances. For instance, that not all civil, civil civilians, of course, are progressive or have sort of... Uh, uh, liberal democratic goals, for instance. 
it's almost self-evident, but but it needs to be underlined anyway. Oh, thank you, Fredrik. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the question. Um, starting with the um, the let's say the diversity of of mm. civilians uh, as humanitarians, we when we I mean we shouldn't, but when we're looking at the, these type of dimensions that you mentioned class, socioeconomic status, gender, age, disability, and these things, we usually go into that uh, with our goal, which is to help. So so we look at those as vulnerabilities. Yeah. And of course, the book presents examples of these as being strengths in terms of um, mobilizing because you're already a network of mm. women or mm. because you can use that role to uh, trick the uh, occupying force, you know, and yeah. So um so that's uh, interesting to me that uh, vulnerability to certain risks it's we're not talking vulnerability in general but vul vulnerability to certain specific risks does not equate with a lack of agency at all um and then um reflecting a bit on the example I gave earlier of uh, work in detention facilities I remember that there was a, a once a riot in the big prison where I was working and not while I was there, thankfully. Um, and in that prison, we were getting calls from um, uh, the people that we were visiting who were worried for their own lives because, as I mentioned earlier, they had charges against them or like accusations uh, that were rather unpopular amongst the general population there. So they were especially two groups that were extremely vulnerable in this situation where the prison was taken over by the detainees. All those were open. And um, interestingly, what happened, at some point, the population from the floor above these two groups came down to basically annihilate one of these two groups. Who, and, and they were in one corridor. The other group, the other vulnerable group was in another. And these would have been arch enemies out in the real world. <laughs> but... These guys found out about this and placed themselves in front of the entrance of this other group. So when this uh, this uh, large group of people came down to get them, uh, they were basically stopped and pulled back, probably impressed by the bravery of these people, but also because they formed a, a bigger and unlikely alliance, actually. Um, and I think now, through the, the prism of what this book is saying, that it made sense not only, you know, they were not only rescuing this other group, which was my initial assumption. They were protecting themselves by just associating themselves with a the bigger group. And in their most vulnerable um, situation, they were pressed to um, basically adopt a very risky uh, protective strategy, mm. uh, and which paid off. Um, the other point I was thinking about was the... Um, how we put this into into action, this sort of diversity factor and um, supporting uh, protective agency for you know those groups that maybe needed the most. I don't know if this is true. This is just if I'm trying to translate some of the humanitarian work to to this kind of work. Would be um, it would be sometimes harder to access uh, these groups and to support them because of geographical barriers, which can make them more uh, vulnerable and in need of, of uh, support because they're further away, but also language barriers, also 
um, you know, their status or stigma in society, etc., etc. And so what I wanted to feed back was, um, while we may have an ambition to help those that are furthest into what we call the last mile, mm. help those f- most in need, uh, support the the agency of the people who really are exposed to violence and really need it, then we also have to be prepared um, for having a slower process, perhaps a more uh, expensive process, a more risky process, and ultimately probably not helping as many people as if we focused on more accessible groups in society. So it it becomes a utilitarian argument a little bit. Mm. Um, And... um, well, for humanitarians, it's a bit easy because you're supposed to go where the needs are and the most pronounced needs especially. But in terms of uh, organizations or others supporting um, civilian protection agency, which becomes a bit more political, the choice is different. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, that also speaks to uh, the introduction by Kalevas also, I think, very clearly state that most of these emergencies will actually take place in some of the more fragile societies. So I think, Aiden, you you brought up the, the importance of considering different kinds of uh, civilian subgroups, in, you could could say, in a sense. So could you elaborate on, on that question? Yes, um, thank you. I guess I'll start a bit from, from the other end uh, in terms of once we are able to do that in a society and have that better understanding and the more nuanced view of who is what type of civilian, if you like, and and not um, put them all together in one big group. Uh, It means that we are also able to support them differently, more nuanced um, and better, uh, whether it is directly bilaterally or um, through multilaterals, etc., in terms of their civilian um, protection agency or or in whatever role they have and and have that um improved understanding in terms of the the class gender socioeconomic um status etc i think again it is particularly in the fragile context um so context dependent on how um how the civilians support, uh, how they're part of uh, a protective effort or not, uh, how they behave in different ways, that um, does it have an impact? Obviously, yes, it does. But I think perhaps we, as um, external actors, have a tendency of perhaps thinking too much in particular categories um, and and applying those when those might not be the most applicable or the most important in that particular context. So again, we come back to that huge, vast importance of knowing the context and, and, you know, that we've been discussing for the last 30 years, but but we need to do that at a much more specific level, both in terms of power and both in terms of um, actors and individual actors. 
I I also want to kind of link back to what Isaac was saying in, in Isaac's chapter in that, and and namely that of perceptions, because in in his chapter, and in in my own work on perceptions from even as far back as as the nineties, um, you know the perceptions that people in these contexts have are have a tendency of being vastly different to what um, the external actors um, believe them to be. So therefore, um, the, the using perceptions, engaging with the civilian population at a much earlier stage becomes critical in this work. Um, because I, I think it was brilliant in, in Isaac's chapter in terms of that um, saying that they were happy with IS's governance. What they weren't happy with was several other factors, but with the governance, whereas, uh, you know, a lot of um, external actors would have a presumption that they weren't happy full stop. <laughs> so I think uh, looking at the perceptions part of this and and engaging much more with that is exceptionally important. Thank you. Uh, Jana, there are many really good examples, I think, of, of these differences in, in terms of civilian agency in the mm. book. So could you give your response to the question and give some examples? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, let me also tie back to a couple of points that Ivan made earlier and that Isaac uh, made um, they, in the first intervention, Aaron mentioned that we need to think uh, of conflict and the situation of civilians, not just in terms of open conflict, but also in terms of latent conflict. And I think that's a really important point. And, you know, Isaac, um, you also underlined that it is really important to think about the capacity of civilians to resist and the capacity of civilians um, to protect themselves in these settings. And I'm emphasizing this because our research in the book and also other research demonstrates that it's really how civilians can protect themselves, what repertoires of action they have available is very much linked to their capacity. And that capacity, in part, comes out of a, um, a sense of social cohesion, a sense of being able to collectively act, to mobilize, when community leaders can mobilize people around shared understandings of the conflict and shared uh, normative understandings of how to act, they are in a much better position to pull together and to protect each other than if the community is very much divided. And so in situations, I mean, many conflict zones have a different geographical spread of open-armed conflict over time. So you have many communities that experience latent conflict and the risk of further escalation um, during as, uh, when front lines move, and others who... that in that period of time, uh, experience open-armed conflict. But if you have international uh, actors, well, meaning the intervening, both humanitarian protection and peace-building actors, um, but unintentionally eroding some of that civilian capacity, mm -hmm. social cohesion, and so on, by actually increasing latent contact, uh, conflict, then that really can have an impact on the capacity of people to resist uh, in the future or to so how build resilience against uh, future open-armed conflict. And I think especially in contemporary settings of very protracted multi-year conflict, um, where you have open violence flaring up time and again um, across uh, different areas of a country, that's a really important point to keep uh, in mind. And lastly, let me just emphasize that I think it's important when we think about civilians um, and the diversity of civilians 
that we understand fundamentally that civilian agency is always, to some extent, political agency. What stand, what civilians choose to do, whether or not they act collectively or not, whether or not they adopt the conflict narratives that certain armed actors um, propose or the ideology of certain armed actors, for example, that's a profound political statement. As you, Isaac, as you presented uh, in your survey, even these small acts of everyday resistance, that's a political position. That's highly risky, even if it doesn't fundamentally immediately alter conflict dynamics, but it is an expression of political agency. In a similar vein, um, Different groups, women groups, for example, can have very different understandings of the conflict zones and what they need in terms of protection. And these are also political demands. In my research, for example, with the civilian monitors in Myanmar, it was very clear that the female monitors had much more of an emphasis on protecting people from forms of sexualized violence, primarily by the Myanmar military, which was an issue that male monitors would normally not even touch on because it was it was sensitive, of course, and not something easily openly discussed. But women groups mobilized for a broader understanding of protection, protecting people from forms of sexual violence and negotiating with the uh, military uh, in order to realize that kind of everyday level protection. Um, and that is also a political standpoint. And this kind of civilian political agency is, of course, contested. And there will be on the ground different understandings of protection needs and different forms of what's needed from international actors uh, to protect different uh, communities. As we are quickly approaching the end, I would like to give the, the panelists a, a few last words. But uh, in that, I think it would be great if we could reflect a little bit more on, on, on where you now ended uh, in terms of how we understand this civilian. Because I think we have been into the political dimension of civilian agency. We've touched a little bit on the, the legal dimension. And there are also many sort of ethical assumptions and, and uh, components. And one, I think, that we quite often circle around but doesn't really always deal with is sort of the, the good and the peaceful civilian. And, and that, of course, can be a contrast with the, the political civilian who, mm. who might take sides in a, in a different context. So I'm just wondering if, if, we, uh, if we look at this civilian and the more difficult sort of ethical dimension, they, they could use violent or choose nonviolent form, their, their form of protecting themselves can result in something that isn't increasing their own protection, at least not over time. So, so particularly from a practical perspective, what are the, the things to, to handle here in, in terms of, of the ethical dimensions on how we see the civilian? Frederick, I know that you have been... Yeah, I mean, uh, for us, the, the, in the Red Cross, the, the answer is quite easy. We, we cannot... Uh, support or be seen to support um, any kind of civilian agency that is neutral. Um, I mean, we have to... It, it's not because we have these humanitarian principles just per se. It's that if we're seen to breach them in any way, we're no longer ourselves able to carve out that neutral space that some of these strategies are doing. So I think we we have to look at where we belong in this architecture of different actors and just sometimes just stay in our lane um that's the practical implication for us at least uh of the of of the civilians um of the civilian in initiatives um and then just you also asked us to say some things in in conclusion um i would think that 
it might be interesting to look at a bit what you were talking about earlier when you brought up the legal aspect. Where do these strategies uh, contribute to more uh, protection? And at which point do they uh, start losing their legal protection? And the legal protection is important because it's also a, a practical protection. Um, some of the suggested or the, the, the mentioned civilian protection agency in the, in the book relates to making civilians um, armed actors legally. And we talked a bit before, that's what you were referring to, that you know the farmer that is also in a militia is a legitimate target when he's in the militia and maybe not when he's farming his land. But when he's planning the attack in his kitchen, is he a legitimate target there? It's just at what point? And at what point does the civilian protective agency therefore become detrimental as it's practically protecting or maybe rescuing others, but becoming a legitimate target in a conflict with other risks such as being killed or hit by artillery, etc.? Um, also in conclusion then for us as humanitarian actors uh, referring back to my introduction the main key learnings that we will take forward in our work in our protection work in the Red Cross is which additional elements this brings to the concept of do no harm and the um, uh, and the caution of moral hazards Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, this links quite nicely to things we're already working on. Mm. And, of course, the conf- conflict sensitivity. We have sometimes contributed to um, building uh, connectors through the projects that um, that we do. And sometimes we have uh, almost put people in danger by, for example, making pamphlets that says, this is the safe route to get to the health facility from the dangerous neighborhood. And... Mm you know, the project is to distribute them. Uh, and then, of course, in a dynamic context, three months mm. later, that's the dangerous route. But you have all these pamphlets out and you've undermined the local mm. uh, civilian protective agency that was in place before. So that just strengthens, uh, that. that's my, my thank you to you for making this book and my final words. Thank you so much, Vedic. Aiden? Yes, um, thank you. I think um with the with the civilians and, and it's a complex issue and you mentioned um you know the the political actor slash civilian versus the good and good and peaceful civilian i get for me the critical issue here is that the civilian or a civilian can be many things throughout a conflict and their role can change for various reasons. Uh, and therefore, how they act might change. Now, that only serves to complicate things further. Uh, but I think it's important that we have that awareness uh, of, of that changing or else we we are left with with um, just acknowledging that there are certain different types, but we still put them in those groups uh, and saying that this group is almost always vulnerable um, versus this group is is not because they act politically, for example. Um, to to sum up, I think this book 
has underscored so many useful things. Um, and critically, again, how important things like power context and actor analysis is to understand who's civilian, who are the actors, um, and what needs to be be done. Um, in addition, the point I brought up earlier is that of perceptions and how invaluable that type of understanding and studies are, uh, and that we need more of that type of analysis um, in a particularly the fragile contexts we work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Isak and Jana, a, a half a minute last words for the... All right, so two very brief remarks. I just want to point out that the one uh, feature of this book is, is its multidisciplinarity and its multi-approach uh, using different approaches. I think that's a, a, a big strength. Uh, they're based on, on sort of different chapters based on case studies. Uh, our chapter is based on a survey. I think the survey has a... a a big advantage in terms of being able to generalize, uh, saying something about the larger population. And if we're talking about perceptions, we want to know how prevalent are these perceptions. And if we want to say make statement of that sort, we need we need uh, representative service, which we have made in, in this. But overall, we have a sort of a big array of different methods. And I think that that is something really important. And just a, a small little remark on this term political. I agreed with Anna that this is we're talking about political act, but it should be reminded that it's not party political, right? We're not talking about political in that sense. Uh, because civil resistance, by definition, are acts that falls outside the political institutional framework where civilians can engage within sort of institutions. But civil resistance is that which is occurring outside of that. So that, I think, is just important to, to bear in mind. Thank you, Zach. Jana, the final word is yours. <laughs> well, final words are difficult after such a broad discussion. Uh, let me perhaps point out one thing um, that hasn't been said yet, which I also think is the strength of the book, and that's that our chapters also demonstrate what are the consequences of certain civilians trying to protect themselves for others in the conflict zone. So we have, for example, research on the DRC conflict um, showing how civilians adopt certain protection strategies that actually have harmful consequences for civilians living elsewhere uh, in the DRC. And I think research and also policy understanding is just about starting to understand that the good um, and ethical civilian, um, as you've put it, isn't the full picture, that some of these acts of civilians simply trying to survive and trying to um, protect themselves can have very detrimental effects um, on other civilians, not least, for example, when civilians uh, form a militia uh, and contribute to more violence in the conflict zone. I think that's obvious, but there are also very less obvious and less visible forms um, of unintentional consequences to civilian actions. And so we do need um, a continued uh, conflict analysis that is conflict-sensitive, that's time-sensitive, um, and able to, to understand how civilian actions uh, change and transform over time and how vulnerabilities change over time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for coming here today. And uh, also warm thank you to those joining online. But uh, please join me in thanking the, the panelists. Thank you for listening to Prio Events. 
For more interesting and thought-provoking content, listen to Prio's Peace in a Pod, a monthly podcast where we invite researchers and industry experts to discuss issues on conflict and peace.